never responsive. They never include clever reposts or attacks. They merely restate the position of the times with greater venom. I was reminded by your editorial that Bush wasn't even your average politically aware Yaley. He was too busy branding freshmen at his fraternity house. In the evening, CBS anchor Dan Rather can be found falsely accusing Republicans of all manner of malfeasance or remarking that a president who has been impeached, disbarred, and held in contempt for his lies is an honest man. Diane Sawyer pronounces that the American people are yawning at the news that the president was engaging in sodomy with a cigar and oral anal sex with a White House intern. Hollywood movies preach about kind-hearted abortionists, Nazi priests, rich, preppy Republican bigots, and the dark night of fascism under Senator Joe McCarthy. Hollywood starlets giddily announce on late-night TV how much they'd like to give Bill Clinton a certain type of sex, as Paula Jones called it. And then Americans wake up for another day of left-wing schlock, beginning their day with the CBS early show's Brian Gumbel somberly asking smut peddler Hugh Hefner for his views on a presidential campaign. We read national magazines that pretend to be reasonable while seething with the impotent violence of women. We wade through preposterous news stories on Enron, global warming, Tawana Brawley, plastic guns, the melting North Pole, the meaning of the word is, until you can't keep up with the wave of lies. It's like being in an earthquake listening to all the gibberish. When arguments are premised on lies, there's no foundation for debate. You end up conceding to half the lies simply to focus on the lies of Holocaust denial proportions. Kind and well-meaning people find themselves afraid to talk about politics. Any sentient person has to be concerned that he might innocently make an argument or employ a turn of phrase that will be discerned by the liberal cult as a code word, evincing a genocidal tendency. The only safe course is to be consciously, stultifyingly boring. It isn't just public figures who have to be worried, though having millions of people listening to their spontaneous on-air remarks obviously raises the stakes a bit. But even a private conversation can be resurrected a decade later. Just a few years ago, a killer walked, largely because a detective involved in the case had used the N-word, almost ten years earlier. In a conversation with his then-girlfriend, Mark Furman spun out imaginary dialogue for a movie script and in so doing committed a hate crime. If the jurors in the O.J. Simpson case could have given Furman the death penalty, he'd be sitting on death row right now. Cutting off your ex-wife's head is a lesser offense in America than using certain words. Vast areas of public policy debate are treated as indistinguishable from using the N-word, a.k.a. the worst offense against mankind. Thus, Representative Charles Rangel, Democrat from New York, took issue with the Republicans' proposed tax cuts, saying, It's not spick or nigger anymore. They say, let's cut taxes. The spirit of the First Amendment has been effectively repealed for conservative speech by a censorious, accusatory mob. Truth cannot prevail, because whole categories of thought are deemed thought crimes. For a fleeting moment, after the September 11th attack on America, all partisan wrangling stopped dead. The country was infused with patriotism and amazingly unified. The attack on America was such a colossal jolt 
Liberals even abandoned their endless pursuit of producing some method of counting the ballots in Florida that would have made Al Gore president. Liberals' sneers about President Bush's intelligence suddenly abated, at first for reasons of decorum, but then because of the indisputable fact that Bush was a magnificent leader. In a moment of crisis, the truth overcame liberal naysaying. After having demeaned President Bush as a lightweight, frat boy, hopelessly ignorant of foreign policy, even Democrats were overcome with relief that Al Gore was not the president. The bipartisan love fest lasted precisely three weeks. That was all the New York Times could endure. Impatient with the national mood of patriotism, liberals returned to their infernal griping about George W. Bush, or half a commander-in-chief, as he was called in the headline of a lead New York Times editorial on November 5, 2001. From that moment on, the left's primary contribution to the war effort was to complain. They complained about the detention of terror suspects. They complained we were going to lose the war. They complained about military tribunals for terrorists. They complained about the Bush administration's failure to solve the anthrax cases instantly. They complained about monitoring terrorists' jailhouse conversations. They complained about the war taking too long. They complained about a trial for John Walker. They complained about, non-existent, ethnic profiling at airports. They complained about the treatment of prisoners at Guantanamo. And they complained about Bush's access of evil speech. And they complained about all the damn flag wavers. The infernal flag waving after 9-11 nearly drove liberals out of their gourds. For the left, flag waving is an epithet. Liberals variously called the flag a joke, very, very dumb, and most cutting, not cosmopolitan. New York University sociology professor Todd Gitlin agonized over the decision to fly the flag outside his apartment, located less than a mile from Ground Zero, explaining, It's very complicated. It must have been galling that no one in America cared. Eventually, the New York Times gave up harping about Bush's handling of the war and turned its full attention to attacking Enron. Here, the country had finally given liberals a war against fundamentalism, and they didn't want to fight it. They would have except it would put them on the same side as the United States. In the wake of an attack on America, committed by crazed fundamentalist Muslims, Walter Cronkite denounced Jerry Falwell. Falwell, it seems, had remarked that gay marriage and abortion on demand may not have warmed the heart of the Almighty. Cronkite proclaimed such a statement, the most abominable thing I've ever heard. Showing his renowned dispassion and critical thinking, this Martha's Vineyard millionaire commented that Falwell was worshipping the same God as the people who bombed the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The difference being liberals urged compassion and understanding toward the terrorists. Indeed, an attack on America by fanatical Muslims had finally provided liberals with a religion they could respect. Heretofore, liberals deemed voluntary student prayers at high school football games a direct assault on the Constitution. But it was of urgent importance that Islamic terrorists being held in Guantanamo be free to practice their religion. This, despite the fact that we had been repeatedly instructed that the terrorists were not practicing true Islam. Less than three months after Islamic terrorists slaughtered thousands of Americans, ABC's 2020 ran a major report titled Abortion Clinics in U.S. Targeted by Religious Terrorists. As Jamie Floyd reported, 
Since September 11th, the word terrorists has come to mean someone who is radical, Islamic, and foreign, but many believe we have as much to fear from a homegrown group of anti-abortion crusaders. New York Times columnist Frank Rich demanded that Ashcroft stop monkeying around with Muslim terrorists and concentrate on anti-abortion extremists. Rich claimed that only pure political malice could explain Attorney General Ashcroft's refusal to meet with Planned Parenthood while purporting to investigate terrorism. Yale Law Professor Bruce Ackerman recommended dropping the war against global terrorism, declare victory at the first decent opportunity, and instead concentrate on homegrown extremists. In lieu of a military response against terrorists abroad and security precautions at home, liberals wanted to get the whole thing over with and just throw conservatives in jail. Rarely had the great divide in the country been so manifest. Liberals hate America. They hate flag wavers. They hate abortion opponents. They hate all religions except Islam, post 9-11. Even Islamic terrorists don't hate America like liberals do. They don't have the energy. If they had that much energy, they'd have indoor plumbing by now. Long before the war, conservatives had a vague sense that liberals didn't much like them. Consider that a president whom liberals themselves called indefensible, outrageous, unforgivable, and shameless had staved off removal from office merely by calling his opponents right-wing Republicans. It was apparent then that we were dealing with a species of primitive religious hatred. Clinton's lies under oath in a judicial proceeding were such a shock to the legal system that just weeks before every Senate Democrat would vote to keep him in office, the entire Supreme